perk up and listen. You're going to need it by the time you get home. Now, I call this, you can't keep a thankful man down. You really can't. But it's going to be about more than just Thanksgiving. But this is one of the main themes of these final passages in Philippians. So let's look at this. We've seen the last few times God's wisdom for a healthy inner life. I like to call it your interior life. And most people neglect their interior life. In America, we're huge on taking care of your body. Get, you know, get those abs and get in shape and, you know, keep your weight down and your heart rate down, or you're not your heart rate, your blood pressure down and cholesterol down and all of that. It's all physiological, but we hugely neglect in, in the West our interior life. But the bottom line is the interior life is what supports the physiological life. Your interior life is, is what you are. It's who you are. Very important. So Paul in chapter four has really honed in on the interior life. And uh, we've discussed a guarded thought life in chapter four, verses six to seven, which is walking in the peace of God. And a guided thought life, we looked at last week, we spent the whole evening on verse 8, which shows whatever is true, whatever is honest, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report, if there be any virtue and any praise, do what? Come on, talk to me, church. Think, think on these things. You're to guide your thoughts onto those things. Because you're not what you eat, you are what you think. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. All right? Now, this time we're going to learn about the power of a thankful heart. First, Paul definitely practiced what he preached. He was bold and confident enough in his walk with the Lord Jesus to say the following words. And I don't know many people that can say this, but let's read it together. Whatever you have learned, I'm hearing two of you, let's try this again. Oh, it wasn't up there? Okay, now it's up there. Let's try it. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. How many of you could say to somebody, hey, watch me, follow me, watch what I say, how I say it, how I walk, how I handle my life, how I navigate through life, how I handle stress. Watch me. And then do what you see me doing, and God's going to give you great peace. How many of you could say that? Let me see your hand. That'd be a tough one, wouldn't it? Maybe on our best day, we could tell somebody that. But fact is, we all struggle. This man, Paul, was sitting in prison when he said this. And we got to keep that in mind, the context of this book. He's sitting in prison And he's so keeping it together that he says, the way I respond to this guy that I'm chained to, the way that I respond to these stresses, these unfairnesses, this inequity, the way that I've been treated for doing nothing but good, the way I do all that I do, you do the same thing and the God of peace and his peace will be with you. That's powerful. So he he walked his talk, didn't he? Now, everything I've told you, he's essentially saying in this letter about joy, I've lived out in front of you. 
I could have moaned, complained, and given up, but I didn't. I sang. How did I do it? By accentuating the positive and filling my heart and mind and soul with thoughts of Christ. I kept my mind on what was true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report. I cast all my cares upon him. I gave him everything in the place of prayer. And his peace guarded my heart and mind. And my thought life was guarded by what I set it on. I could have gone negative, could have spiraled down, could have gotten depressed. Could have moaned and groaned and held a great big fat pity party here in prison. But I didn't. I sang. I kept it together. I know what I'm talking about. I'm prescribing to you what the doctor ordered for me. And it worked. Joy. Everybody say joy. Joy. Now, if he could do this in prison, what about you and me? We're not in prison. We're in hassles and stresses and so on. But we're not in prison. We're not looking at our head being taken off. Not yet. So can we maintain joy if he did? Can we maintain peace if he did? Can we maintain a walk with God if he did where he was? That's what he's telling us. As we come to the close of this great letter of the Philippian church, let's remember that Paul has introduced us to three secrets for triumphant living. Okay? Here they are. Let's let's sum them up. Say it with me, proper theology. Oh, that matters. Uh, Because theology is what you think about God. Now, second, positive thinking. And now, perpetual thanksgiving. So if you understand the Bible the way you should, and you maintain that, that thought life that is set on the things above and not on things of the earth, and you maintain a thankful heart, you will live a victorious Christian life in your spirit. You will. No getting around it. I've never known a sad, thankful person. And I've never known a happy, griping person. Have you? If they were happy, they wouldn't be griping. I've never known a sad, thankful person. And I've never, ever known a happy complainer. Ever. Now, Thanksgiving is indispensable to a victorious Christian life. Not just once a year at Thanksgiving time. It is indispensable. If you want to have a victorious Christian life, you must be a thanker. You must think to thank. You must remember to thank. You must find the things in life that you can be thankful for and take off and thank God for those things. Because you can find the bad, the good. You can focus on the dark or the light. It's all a matter of what you choose to major on. That's what Paul is telling us. I'm sitting here in prison. But I found something I can thank God for. I'm saved. I'm a child of God. If they take my head off, I'm going to heaven. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. I'm choosing to find the positive, and I'm going to think on those things and thank God for those things. And I'm not going to focus on and harp on murmuring and complaining. That's what killed an entire generation of Israelites. Their bones bleached white in a wilderness a stone's throw away from the land that God had called them to, and they never made it because they were complaining and murmuring and grumbling and giving to each other bad reports. They killed themselves with their mouth. Their tongue dug their grave. They laid down in it. Then their tongue pulled the dirt over them and buried them. Amen. That's the power of what you say. 
It's the power of thanking or not thanking. Now, first, when it came to thanksgiving, Paul learned how to wait. He could thank God because he'd learned how to wait. I wish that I could take this concept and lift off the top of your head and just put it in and then close your head up. Because I want you to catch this now. He could never have been thankful if he had not learned how to wait. Now, some people know how to, know, know to wait. They wait, but they don't wait good. They wait like this. Where are you, God? Man, I, I, I gave that tithe last week and I still haven't had a blessing. I prayed and prayed. This is three days now. You still haven't answered me. Hurry up and give me patience. We know to wait. Sometimes we only wait because we have to wait. But Paul knew how to wait. Look at verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. All right, now, the phrase has flourished again, your care for me has flourished again, means blossomed out or revived. This suggests a sudden, spontaneous, natural flowering of the Philippians' love for Paul. Your care for me has flourished again. Now, they had sent a gift because in that day, a prisoner was not cared for by the state. If somebody didn't get their food and their goods to them, they died. It's that simple. They must care for themselves or lean on loved ones. They had to, they had to figure out a way to get what they needed or, or loved ones bring it to them or they, nobody gave them anything. They, they sat in there and they, they died. They starved to death. They went without. And this is where Paul was. So they sent a gift, these Philippians. And this is really going to matter when we get to verse 19. And we're going to see why God told them, my God shall supply all your needs. We're going to see that. But right now, I want you to understand that he was, he was dependent on God moving on somebody else to get to him what he needed. And notice he says, now at last, back to the verse. Do you see it now? I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last. Clearly, Paul had been waiting, or he wouldn't have said, at last. His circumstances may have been really difficult right before the provision came from the Philippians. He might have been praying more than usual for God to send financial aid. So when it came, all that Paul could say was, say it with me, at last. Anybody said that lately? Anybody could say, man, I've got a prayer up in heaven right now, and if God were to do it, I would say, at last. Mm-hmm. He said, at last. I've been fasting. I've been going without, and now I've got what I asked God to send me. And he used the church. He used the church. I was in prison, and you visited me. I was hungry, and you fed me. I was sick, and you came and visited me. How, how did we see you in prison, Lord, and how did we feed you when you were hungry, and, 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 and how did we tend to you when you were sick? And he said, inasmuch as you've done it to the least of one of these, my brethren, you did it straight to me. So when they sent relief to Paul, they sent relief to Jesus. 
Paul had learned to walk in victory, thanking God no matter what. He learned how to wait in a way that he kept the victory before the provision arrived. He kept the victory in his interior life. When the gift arrived, he rejoiced in the Lord greatly, the Bible says, because that was his custom. He was always rejoicing in the Lord. Paul was always rejoicing in the Lord. He didn't have very many good circumstances he could rejoice in. So he said, well, I'm just going to learn to rejoice in the Lord, no matter what's going on around me. So he rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And not only had Paul learned how to wait, he had also learned how to want. Now catch this. Look at verse 11. Not that I speak in respect to want, for I have learned in whatever state I am, Colorado, Texas, that's really bad. I just had to do it. Just want to be sure y'all were listening. But the word is, of course, condition. In whatever condition I'm in, now catch this, church. I've learned to be content no matter what is around me or not around me, no matter what's in my life or isn't in my life, no matter if times are good or times are bad. I have learned the secret to being content. Boy, I want to know that. Paul is saying, please don't think I was down to my last penny because I wasn't down to my last penny. I was not at that point of destitution. I'm not complaining and I'm not criticizing and I'm not begging you for more. God has never let me down. Okay? Continuing, Paul said, and I want you to read this with me. I have learned the secret of serenity. No matter what condition I'm in, I've learned to be content. Do you see that he said the word secret? I've learned a secret. Sitting in this prison, this Roman guard chained to me, knowing that any day they could take my life, I've learned a secret. Through all the ups and downs, the shipwrecks, the fastings, the beatings, the rejections, the ostracism from my own family and kin, I have learned a secret. I know how to be content no matter what is going on around me. I think if I could inject America with anything, it would be first a knowledge of Jesus Christ and right behind that, divine contentment. Because do you know how many mistakes we make when we're not content? Do you know that content, that lack of contentment, I believe, is, is the devil's workshop? When you're always walking around thinking, well, I wish I had this, I wish I had that. Why don't I have this? And why don't I have that? And why doesn't God give me this? And why doesn't God give me that? And look what so-and-so has and I don't have. And look what that person has and I don't have. And why do they have it and I don't have it? And you get involved in class envy. You get involved in jealousy. You get involved in comparing yourself to other people. And the Bible says that's not wise at all. You got to get to the point where you say, Lord, I thank you for what you have given me. I am not them. I am me. And I don't really know what's going on in their life, but I do know what's going on in mine. And I have made up my mind. I'm not going to be a complainer, a murmurer. I am not going to play a fiddle all day long. I am not going to throw pity parties but I am going to learn the secret that Paul understood, and that is, I'm content. It is enough. I'm content. (laughs) 
when he was hailed enthusiastically upon his return to churches he had planted, in his high moments, he was content. When he was chained to a Roman soldier, Paul was content. When he was preaching to a king, he was content. When he was waiting to appear before a court that could sentence him to death, he was content. Essentially, Paul had learned, catch this, to live in complete detachment from his circumstances. As the Psalms would say, see law that. He had learned to live in detachment from his circumstances. His circumstances did not determine his mood. His circumstances did not decide whether or not he was happy or sad, down or glad. His circumstances did not affect his condition in the presence of God. He maintained a steady eddy contentment no matter what. Since he believed that all of his circumstances were ordered of the Lord, all was well. I can't tell you how I'm learning. Uh, several years ago, the Lord began to really put into my spirit the understanding of God's providence. If you read the old preachers from a couple of centuries ago when they still preached the Word, because a lot of them don't anymore, but when they were really preaching the Word a couple of centuries ago, all they, listen, it was a broken record. You would hear providence. God's sovereignty, like a broken record. They talked about God's providence and God's sovereignty over and over again. You almost never heard a message from some of the great preachers like Spurgeon and Whitfield and the Wesleys and Luther. And you could go all down through church history and, and read their stuff, the, the, the church fathers. And they were always talking about God's providence. What is God's providence? He's got it all under control. That, that's God's providence. And, and I catch myself more and more and more in life experiencing relief from stress when I just look at something that I cannot change and I say, you know what? I trust providence. I just trust providence. He's bigger than my circumstances. He's bigger than the devil. He, he's bigger than people. He's bigger than what people try to do to you. He's bigger than the attacks of Satan against you. He's bigger than satanic assignments. Right when it looks like everything's out of control, you realize he's got it in the hollow. Listen, I've been reading Revelations in the morning. Can you imagine that for a morning devotional? Revelations, seals and trumpets and creatures and, you know, the sea turning to blood and all that. But I have been. And you know what I've seen over and over again? Though it looks like all hell has broken loose on earth, and it has, yet behind it all is the providential hand of God. He's got it. Now, Paul, Paul came to the understanding, you know, I'm in prison. I can't do anything about this right now. But he's got it. I know he's got it. Uh, uh, they may take my head off, but he, he's got it. If I get out of here and walk free, he's got it. If I go build more churches, it's in his hand. I can't detach myself from this Roman guard. It's going to have to be God. But in the meantime, I'm not going to fret, chew my nails, lose my sleep, lose my appetite. 
I'm not going to murmur. I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to gripe. I'm not going to call for lawyers. I'm not going to have a nervous breakdown. I am going to trust him. Just trust him. He's got it. And therefore, I can be content. God's will to Paul was good, acceptable, and perfect. No matter where he was, he trusted God. I'm going to tell you, church, listen, the church is going to have to learn that quickly. Where this world is going, we're going to have to learn that God's got it. And that even in the fiery oven, we can, we can trust him. Even in the dark valley, we can trust him. Even when it looks like all hell is breaking loose on earth and Satan is winning the day, we have got to learn to trust him. Next, Paul explains the application of this truth. How did he apply what he had come to understand? He says in verse 12, read it with me, everybody. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I have learned both to be full, to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Have you learned that? That's not easy to learn. Now let's pick that apart, unpack that verse a little bit. The word abased describes a river in a time of drought. So his words could be rendered, I know how to run low. I know how to be content when things are low. When I may have lost a job. When a relationship may have fallen apart. When the car is running on empty. I have learned to be content when things are running low. I can say it is enough. He's got it. Most of us know what it is to run low, but have we learned how to run low the way that Paul did? Have we learned how to run low with thanksgiving, with peace, with confidence that God's got it? Or do we run low bad? Do we freak out? Do we... Well, let's just move on here. In the same token, many of us know what it is to abound, to overflow, don't we? And we like that one. Oh, bless me, Lord. Pour it out. We know how to abound, but do we know, do we really know how to abound without it hurting us? Paul had learned how to be abased and he had learned how to abound. For instance, have we learned how to face poverty without panicking? Have we learned how to face sickness, rejection, or disappointment without freaking out? Without leaving church, closing the Bible, picking up our marbles, and going home? Have we learned how to face prosperity without pride grabbing hold of us? Have we learned how to face accolades or increased authority or great success without it puffing us up? I really think it's a greater test to succeed than it is to fail. I really do. I think success is a greater test than failure because failure takes you to your knees and say, oh God, I failed. Please forgive me. Help me. Pick me back up. But when you're successful and it looks like you've got the Midas touch and everything you touch turns to gold, you start believing in you instead of him. You start leaning on your talent instead of the one that gave you the talent. And if you're not careful, success will shipwreck you faster than a failure. I can tell you as a pastor and a Christian of many years, 
I have seen many succumb to life's adversities because they never learn how to handle them. So when God, in their perception, fails them, they believe God's going to do a certain thing. He doesn't do it when they thought he would, the way they thought he should. They get out of church. They, they close their Bibles. They quit praying. They walk off mad at God. They get offended at God. They start, they start going carnal because they say it didn't work for me. Christianity has never been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and not tried because we don't understand the way it really works. So I've seen adversity wipe people out and they blame God for their troubles. And I've also watched many others become filled with pride when they had great success, only to stumble later because they didn't know how to handle it. I'm telling you, church, it takes, it takes more skill, more wisdom, more Jesus in you to handle great success than it does failure. I've seen money and success totally transform people into, into someone I did not know anymore. That's why the Bible warns, if riches increase, don't put your confidence in them. Keep your confidence in God. Those riches are coming from Him. That blessing is coming from the blesser. It's not just your talent. He gave you that talent. You couldn't lift a finger or walk another day without the grace of God. If God gives you good success, give him all the glory because he's the one that gave it to you. And I want successful people. I really want successful people, but I want successful people who are handling the success and staying humble in the presence of God. Now, Paul had learned how to navigate a basement and success. The ups and the downs of life by maintaining a Christ-centered focus, a thankful heart, and a joyful spirit. That's how he did it. He gave God all the glory. Now, no matter what, he said, I'm content. He was victorious in all things, even in chains. He was victorious. You can't knock a thankful man down. Can't do it. Now, there was a secret to all this contentment, and it's found in verse 13. I want you to read this with me. We know this verse, don't we? I can do. Preach it to me, church. Let's start over. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's the secret of his contentment right there. There it is in black and white. I can do. I can be content in everything. A basement of success. Everything. I can practice the presence of God through Christ, who strengthens me. Now, how could Paul be content, whether full or hungry? The secret he said is Christ. It was Christ who strengthened him. The key word here is through. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He used that very same formula through Christ in verse, uh, in in uh, six verses earlier, when he said, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds, where? Through Christ Jesus. So there is, there is something here we need to get a hold of tonight. Through Christ. Through Christ, we have peace. Through Christ, we have strength. Through Christ, we have contentment. Through Christ, we live. Abide in me and let my words abide in you. And whatever you ask will be done for you. Abide in me and let my words abide in you. Through Christ. 
through the strength of Christ Jesus, by abiding in the vine, by drawing from his spirit, by living in his word, we Christians can do all things through Christ Jesus. Bottom line is, are you feeding your interior life? Are you nourishing the inner man? If you're not, you're not going to do any of these things through Christ. You're saved, but it stops there because fruit bearing comes through Christ. And how are you seeing anything happen in your life through Christ? By abiding in Christ daily. There, there is in my backyard a beautiful tree. I planted it when it was this high 20 years ago. We've been in the same house 20 plus years. It was this high. Now it is this big, huge, beautiful oak tree where the birds of the air lodge in it and squirrels get into it and torment my dogs. <laughs> and they're totally safe because this, this tree is so beautiful. But this storm that came through a while back, it hit a limb, it broke a limb loose and the limb dropped down and hung. Now for about a week, it looked just like all the other limbs. The leaves looked the same. The wood looked the same. It looked just the same for about a week. But then the story began to be told. The leaves began to brown. The wood got dry and brittle. It began to move at every little breeze because it no longer had flexibility. It was stiff and unyielding. And when I look at that, and it's just high enough, I can't get to it. So I've had to watch it day by day. And you know me how I think. I'm thinking of scripture as I'm looking at it. And I'm thinking of the vine. All that that limb did to die was detach from the vine. And for a while, you couldn't tell. For a while, it looked like it was alive. But Jesus said to one of the churches in Revelations, you got a reputation that you're alive, but I know you are dead. And some people detach from Christ, get out of the word, get out of prayer, get out of church, and for a while, they can walk around and, and you say to yourself, well, they're out of church and it's not hurting them any. Watch a little bit longer. Because the story begins to be told. They begin to get dry, brittle, lifeless, rigid, dead. How do you do things through Christ? By every day abiding in the vine through the word, through prayer, and through fellowship. And as long as you stay in that vine, you're going to produce the fruit of the vine, the leaves of the vine, the life of the vine, the power of the vine, the glory of the vine. Now, next, Paul commends the Philippians for helping him financially. He says, nevertheless, you've done well that you shared in my distress. When Paul encountered a need in his life, Paul had a remedy. It's a four-letter word, work. Americans more and more don't like that four-letter word, work. He never begged feeling this was beneath his testimony of God's care for him. He didn't do like some preachers on TV who go on and just beg, tell you if you send in your check, your runaway child's coming home. They work you, they scam you, some of them. And I'm being honest with you. Paul would have rather gone to heaven than done that. He said, here's my needs, Lord. Now, whoever you're going to move on, that's your business. But I'm giving you my needs. 
and God moved on the Philippian church. Now, sometimes he did need help, particularly in times of severe persecution or when he was in prison. This is what the Philippians had come through with. Yet as a rule to live by, the commandment to work is what he gave to all the churches. Now, I, I want to go just for a second on this because there is a disease spreading through our country. And I have to address it, church, because it's spiritual at its root. And so bear with me a minute, okay? Say amen, Pastor Jeff. Amen. Give me a smile, all right, because I got to go here. I'm called to preach the Bible. I got to tell you what the Bible says. Because there is a disease moving through America. It's called entitlement. It's called the entitlement mentality. Look what Paul wrote to the church. He said, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. Now what that verse gave to us is what we call the Protestant work ethic. It is the work ethic that made America great in America's early days and would still make us great if we did it now. It was, if I don't work, I have no right to eat. Now, I know, I get it. There are some people who cannot work. I get it. I get it. But when was the last time you stood in a grocery store line and everybody in front of you pulled out a snap card or food stamps and they look healthy. They had kids. They looked healthy. And what really gets you is when you watch them walk out and get into a vehicle you wish you had. <laughs> and you want to go chase them down and say, hey, you know who paid for those food stamps? I did. And how did you get that vehicle? Let me trade with you right now. Because my taxes gave you those food stamps. I understand there's some who can't, and those who can't, you won't find a church in this city that gives more percentage to benevolence helping people than ours. It's way above average. So it's not that I don't believe in helping people who can't help themselves. I do, and I believe that's Christ-like. But I don't think it's Christ-like when you are able, when you are capable, when you are healthy, when you could easily go get a job. And you don't because you can get a snap card or food stamps and live off welfare instead of the sweat of your own brow. Now, let me show you. The growing entitlement mentality of Americans would not have jived well with Paul, who gave this word of instruction by the leadership of the Holy Spirit. If any man will not work, neither should he eat. To expect to be taken care of through other people's labors because you're entitled to such support is utterly contrary to the Word of God and everything that is fair. Let's say, I say to you, hey, this week, let's go see a movie. Let's go to that theater where you sit down, you watch a movie, and you can order food. I mean, they can bring you food. I go to about a movie a year, and we went to one recently, and... We order food just sitting there. Great chair, lean back, it's like an easy chair, and we watch the movie. Now, what if I said to you after, uh, after we left that I had handed the bill to you and said, really appreciate you inviting me to this movie, and I really appreciate the food. God bless you. Let's do this again. Here's the bill. Now, you'd walk out going, wow, that bugs me. What were they thinking? Well, maybe I communicated something wrong. So... 
you kind of blow it off and give it to God, and I'm going to choose to believe the best. But then you get a call from me again in about a week. Hey, you want to go to a movie again? You say, okay. So we go to the same theater, we sit down, we order food, and again, I get the bill and I hand it to you. Appreciate it, brother. Wow, what a blessing. Thanks. Have a great week. And I walk away. Now there's something brewing in your spirit. You're starting to wonder about me, and you should. Here's what you're thinking. Why should I pay your way? Because I see you get into a car, and I know that you have a job, and I, and I know that you're capable, so why are you letting me do this? So finally, I can't stand it. And I say to you, hey, how come you're letting me pay every single time? And I said to you, because I'm me. Don't you understand? I'm entitled. Uh, uh, I'm me. And because I am so me, so wonderful, so entitled, it's only right that you should pay my way. And you say, no way. After that second trip to the movie, I'm done with you, dude. But now, that's what 50% of Americans are doing. They're letting you and every taxpayer pay their way when they don't have to. Paul said, that's not right. In Eden, even before the fall, God gave to Adam a task. It says, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. What did he put him in the garden to do? Tend and keep it. That was before the fall. When everything was right, God still gave him a job. And then in Eden, even, uh, then after the fall, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. After the fall, God still said, quote, by the sweat of your brow, will you have food to eat? Therefore, the Lord God sent him out into the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. What did God give him to do after the fall? A job. So before the fall, after the fall, God had a little philosophy. You labor and you reap the benefits of your labor and that's the way I wired you. His will for mankind has never changed. Nowhere in Scripture are we told that one part of mankind is to work by the sweat of their brow while the other part of mankind enjoys the benefits. This is socialism. This is socialism. And it is a welfare mentality. And would to God the church would shed it. If you can work, do it. Because I believe something happens to a person when everything's given to them and they don't work for it. I think it destroys character. It destroys the home. It has produced, I believe, millions of single-parent families in our culture. Because the man says, you don't need me. The man says, I don't need to stick around because you can just get on welfare. I don't need to stick around. You don't need me to be the breadwinner. I'm going to go on down the road because I don't, I, you don't need me because the government will take care of you. The government's your provider. Jesus did not teach. Give us government this day our daily bread. <laughs> did he? Not to the children of God. He said, Father in heaven, give me this day my daily bread. This kind of welfare entitlement thinking destroys incentive 
It snuffs out creativity. It wreaks havoc on the joy of personal achievement, and it brings a nation into ruin. Here's what happens. It's only a matter of time before the number of takers exceeds the number of contributors, and the whole society collapses under the weight. And we are right there. I mean, right there where you're going to see bank runs and, and financial collapse because the government will no longer be able to support all the entitlements. Bottom line, get off your blessed assurance and get a job. That's right. It's true. If you can. Now, we as a nation are rapidly headed there rather than focusing on the mantra of taxing the rich more. I feel like a politician tonight. But I wish I could say this. Oh, I'd love to walk into the halls of Congress and say this. Rather than focusing on the mantra of taxing the rich more, how about taxing the 50% of Americans who don't pay any taxes at all? Where's that? Really? What would it do for our struggling economy if 50% of takers who don't bother to contribute had to start paying their fair share? Some of this incredible deficit would be retired. Now back to Paul. Everybody say amen. amen. Uh, this sits on me. And I have to, there's things I have to get off my chest. Thank you for bearing with me. But you know this is spiritual at its root. It is. Now, there were times when the great apostle would name names. And he does it here in an indirect kind of way. He says in verses 15 and 16, as you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Wow. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once, but no one else did. Think of all the churches he planted. How about the Ephesians? How about the church at Rome? How about, I mean, you can, the Colossians. Where were all the churches? Only the Philippians helped him. Paul, a prisoner of the cause of Christ, was being left to starve. Yet the Philippians would re, uh, receive a blessing from God for their care of Paul. They gave to him once, and then they gave to him again, and they gave to him again. Remember what I said, you do it to me, you did it to him. So they sent a gift once, they sent a gift again, and they sent a gift again. They helped him over and over. So he says in verse 17, I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. They were laying up treasures in heaven. Like one preacher said, if you want treasure in heaven, you better give some money to somebody who's going there. Right? That's how you store up treasures in heaven. Give some money to somebody who's going there. Or give, give, give some money to somebody in the name of the Lord. Paul had not fished for a gift. He was instead in quest of the interest that was accumulating to their spiritual bank account. Now look at verse 18. At the moment, I've got everything I need and more. He had received their gift. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me with Epaphroditus. They are sweet smelling. They are a sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. Epaphroditus had delivered their gift. Now he had plenty. 
Now, J.B. Phillips gives a beautiful rendering of this verse, quote, Now I have everything I want. In fact, I am rich. Such generosity is like a lovely fragrance, a sacrifice that pleases the very heart of God. Now the Philippians can expect a blessing. Why? Because they had seed in the ground. Here's why they received this verse. Read it with me. And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Why did he give them that promise in 19? Because of what they did in verse 17 and 18. They had given to the man of God when he was in great need. And he said, now he's going to take care of you. Now, apparently some of them had given even above their means. But Paul knew that his God was their God and nobody could outgive him. Out of his unfailing treasury, he would supply their need. So we're going to stand together tonight and read these final four verses and close out this great book. And read it with me real good. Let's put some faith to it. Are you ready? Now all glory to God our Father forever and ever. Amen. Give my greetings to each of God's holy people, all who belong to Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you their greetings, and all the rest of God's people send you greetings too, especially those in Caesar's household. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together, Father. Thank you for the grace of the Lord Jesus with our spirit. Lord, I pray that you'll take these words tonight and they'll be good seed in the ground, not just here, but out over the radio, out over the media. The Lord, your word will change hearts and lives. And I do pray and we agree together that you will have mercy on the United States of America. And Lord, this sickening, wrong-headed, ill-advised welfare mentality that is so destructive and that is breaking the back and the bank of America will be turned back and we'll return to what our forefathers knew. Hard work, great fulfillment from it, and the right to enjoy the fruits of those labors. Deliver us from this insidious class warfare that is being waged against this country. Deliver us, Lord, from the envy and the jealousy of one towards another. Lord, deliver us from this notion that we should not reap the benefits of our labor, all the benefits of our labor. Deliver us, Lord, from this wrong-headed notion that those who don't do anything should receive from those that do. Give us back our sense of self-respect and self-esteem. We ask you, Lord God, to do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Give him a hand of praise tonight. Amen. 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 How many of you ever heard of Jephthah? 
See, he's an unsung hero. You don't know who he is, but we're going to be talking about it this weekend. Saturday nights are doing great. We're